0: Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray.
1: And I'm Glenn Langenberg.
0: All right, Glenn, another day, another dollar. Dollar contributed to Patreon.com. Ah. All right, so, Eric, for you,
1: it was the best of times, it was
0: the blurst of times.
1: Oh, a Simpsons reference. Very nice. <laughs> well done. That Not many people will catch that. But no, you're still wrong. Okay. Uh, no, it was another day that we received Patreon contributions, and we appreciate that from our listeners. It helps keep us going, and really, thanks, guys. Uh, it's it's really nice that you guys support us doing this.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much. Damn monkeys. Yeah, again, back to the Simpsons reference. Anyway, speaking of Patreon. Gr- great episode. It was. It um, was. Thank you very much to listeners and supporters, Jennifer, and also thank you to Ashley for your uh, brand new contributions to our little show here. And uh I definitely appreciate all of the support that's been uh, pouring in here in the new year. So, uh,
1: Yeah, they're the grease that keeps the wheels
0: turning. Absolutely. Uh, we should have used that for one of the questions. Maybe we would have finally gotten it right for one of the, for once. We have a guest on this week. We were recently a guest on her show, so we're just kind of returning the favor here and having her having her here join us. Uh, so, welcome, Laura. Laura Keck is joining us here on the Double Loop Podcast. So, hi, Laura.
2: Hi, guys. How are you?
0: Doing very well. Thank you very much. Why don't you introduce yourself to our our listeners? Uh, because. I'm pretty sure we have a pretty diverse, separate audience of listeners, so our listeners aren't really going to know who you are, just as a lot of your listeners didn't know who we were when we joined uh, your show. Uh, so uh, introduce uh, yourself, talk about uh, your, you know, your background, how you got interested in true crime and forensics, and uh, the show that you do on YouTube. All
2: right, my name is Laura. I have a show on YouTube called Perplex QT. It's a long story how the name came in, but um, <laughs> I... <laughs> But I have been doing it for about two years. I took off for about a year. How I got into it, what made me do it, was making a murderer. As you guys know, I have a different impression of making a murderer than you guys.
0: Hey, yeah, For and- some aspects. Some aspects we agree.
2: <laughs> but I had studied. the. Ca- I knew about the case from doing my master's in criminal justice. Right. And then making a murderer came out, and I was enthralled with the case.
1: Laura, can, so- can I ask you a question? It, sure. In your original master's, did you know about the Stephen Avery original rape case that was part of the Innocence Project Overturned, or did you know about the Hallback aspect? Because I, I had students too, and for the first years in my courses, they all knew about the Stephen Avery reversed rape case. But then it became this whole other thing where he later became accused in the, the Teresa Hallback. So uh, how did you first become acquainted, the through the Innocence Project rape or through the actual murder case?
3: We
2: actually discussed both. I did my master's in 2012, oh. and we actually discussed both okay. because it was all about, you know, what can happen in prison. Now, mind you, I thought he was guilty. Like I yeah. thought he was guilty all the way to making a murderer – Came out and everyone said to me, like, you know, oh, you have to see. I said, I already know the case. He's guilty. The case closed. And then I watched it. Interesting. So, the reason, going into my background, though, the reason why I even went for my master's in criminal justice is I really wanted to be a criminal profiler for the FBI.
3: Oh, okay. <laughs> halfway, through
2: my, yeah, halfway through my master's, I learned that I was already too old and I was devastated. I was like, what? How am I too old? And they said, yep, you're way too old already, because I was already in my 40s, and I think I had just turned 40, and they said there's like a max out of like 35 or 37, and that was it. And I was like, so I can't be a criminal profile, like you could be a private investigator. That's not the same, so I gave up on that.
1: (laughs) Well, if it's any consolation, they stopped training people somewhere around the year 2000 or so, so they actually shut that program down years before. Yeah, I knew one of the last people that went through the training program. We had one here in Minnesota. There weren't many uh, after the year 2000. They they really had, I think, somewhere in the late 90s, stopped taking new people into it and were basically shutting that down. So even today, it's not something that people can can just join and, and do. There are very, very few of them left. Wow. All
2: right. That makes me feel better, though. I Nobody ever told me that. Like, honestly, yeah. nobody ever told me that. I feel better about that.
1: Yeah, I I think their last graduating class was like the early 90s or um, middle middle 90s or something.
2: Yeah, mid-90s, I was nowhere thinking about the law. I was thinking about (laughs) how to stay out of the law, but yeah. Um, And I actually, I took my original degree was journalism and communications, Mm -hmm. and and I had a teacher that really pushed me out of it. And then I got into psychology and I was a regular kid. I don't know what I wanted to do. And then I really started wanting to get back into journalism, but I mean writing's changed, everything's changed. And then after watching making a murder and listening to all these YouTubers that I felt were idiots, I said, you know what? I'm gonna start a channel and then it so it began. And that's basically about it.
1: And about how many people do you have following you on and subscribing on YouTube?
2: Right now I have almost 6,400 on my main channel, and I just started a new live channel um, last week. Yeah, last week, and it's at almost 400 subs already.
1: That's amazing, man. That's that's incredible. Well, hopefully a few of those will check out this episode of the of the Double Loop, and maybe they might even get hooked or interested in some forensic science.
2: Everybody's waiting to see this. They liked it.
1: Oh, it's fantastic. Well, uh, so the 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 goal today is i i have had this idea for a while and there's a paper coming out um from uh a, a woman who's been on our podcast before gianni ribeiro 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 ribeira uh we we've had her on, had Sorry, her on a few weeks ago and she was um, – she's published a paper dealing with uh, jurors' expectations and things like CSI effects and so forth. And we'll, we're going to be covering that in a week or two. But what I thought would be a nice precursor to that is to have you on, Laura, because I mean, you're, even though you're what we would call a person, you're not um, <laughs> traditionally trained in forensic science – you still know a lot about forensic science and investigations, and I suspect that this makes you somewhat of a skeptical juror. If you have, you ever served juror duty or jury duty?
2: I didn't. I've been dying to
1: serve jury <laughs> dying dying duty. Right, right,
2: dying to it. And I've never been called. I'm a tax paying, you know, voter registered yeah. citizen. I've never been called in forty eight years of life.
1: Yeah, and if I was a prosecutor, I would strike you instantly. I would. But... I would stri- if if? If I was a prosecutor, I would strike you. If you, if I was a defense attorney, I would definitely want you on there because, I mean, you have a, a very skeptical view about things, and you look at things from different angles. And just because a forensic scientist says this is what I think, you don't necessarily immediately just give up all your other thoughts and you know dismiss everything else. And so you have a what I would consider, and there's probably your journalism background, a, a healthy skepticism.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So the idea today is to run through a few scenarios with you and this is something that I have done for at least 10 maybe even 15 years going back to when I was a teacher at a university. I would often each semester ask my students these questions and I run them through these scenarios and the answers actually were very informative to me because they helped to color and modify and direct how I would actually give testimony as an expert witness because what I thought as an expert witness was not exactly what my lay people, friends, colleagues, students, etc., thought. And it, it, it really made me realize that a lot of how I was trained and what I was told jurors expected or believed, a lot of that was either incorrect or maybe not very well informed. And so I want to run through some of the scenarios and different examples that are out in our profession, even things that are taught to forensic professionals and, and run them through you and see what you think, kind of running them through the, you know, the filter of your prism and seeing what you think and how you might react. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. Absolutely. And, and Eric's going to run through some things too, especially in, in fingerprints right now, we have a lot of changing definitions and changing standards, and we want to just get a lay person's reaction and see, see what you think. And I, and I have a feeling that listeners are going to be very interested in your views. And I, and I will recommend to all of our listeners these scenarios that Eric and I will be pitching to Laura today. I highly recommend that you run these kinds of scenarios through lay people, you know, if you're at a bar and you've got a bartender there or a waitress or someone and you're killing time or you're on an airplane or you're stuck somewhere and you, you have to, t- you know, just kind of make chit chat rather than talk about the weather ask them about these questions and i think you'll be very very surprised about the answers that you hear because they're so contrary often to what forensic professionals are taught all right so here we go laura so the the first scenario i want to run you through is imagine that you're a juror in a drug case all right so essentially here's your scenario this guy who's the defendant was driving a vehicle and let's say he was driving this vehicle from texas to minnesota and at some point his car gets stopped and they search the car the cops search the car and they find in his trunk along with you know several suitcases and other things uh, they find a kilo of cocaine and it's taken to the lab and it's confirmed to be cocaine so At this point, that's all you really know. And let's say the defendant is charged with possession of controlled substances. He has a kilo of cocaine in his trunk, and that's the only forensic work that is done. If you're a juror, just based on that, that's all you know, what are you thinking at this point? Are you thinking that you might be—and I'm not looking for a guilty or not guilty, but are you leaning towards, well, I probably would vote guilty— for possession of a kilo of controlled substance, a first degree that would have a mandatory of at least 10 years here, what do you think?
2: My first thought is man is suzu in serious federal time. Mm-hmm. My second thought would be, is it a rental car? Uh-huh. Did the luggage did the luggage match his other luggage? Okay. Is he claiming that he's, that it's his or it's not his?
1: All right, so I, I'll answer that. He is definitely saying it's not his. He was unaware that it was in his trunk.
2: Okay. Did he have other luggage in his trunk?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, he had several duffel bags and a suitcase. But this was not in, uh, in any of those. This was wedged somewhere up behind the suitcases.
2: Okay. And is it, when you open it, is it possible you wouldn't have seen it?
1: The trunk? If you open the trunk?
2: If you open the trunk and he was throwing his other bags in there, is it possible that he wouldn't have seen this other
1: suitcase? Yeah, it's possible. If, Or I mean, it, it's not a suitcase. We'll uh, get to describing it. But let's just say it is um uh, as many times, it's several balloons filled with cocaine powder that are then wrapped in Saran wrap, which is then covered in mustard, which is then wrapped in duct tape, which is then covered in coffee grounds, which is then covered again in duct tape.
0: We're on the opposite side how to
2: transport.
1: We're on the unwrapping yeah, end of this uh, mess. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you know, so you basically have a duct tape brick that's in the vehicle.
2: OK, but in a, this is really important, though. In a trunk, like, let's say, depending on the trunk, if he had a trunk that had a lift up and it was underneath that hood where he wouldn't have seen it or noticed it. Yeah. Because I can't imagine if it was his. I mean, honestly, if it was his, he'd leave it in plain view like that. So you have to think, is it possible that it went underneath that you know like some cars have a thing yep. um did it go underneath that? Was it underneath the spare tire in the trunk where you would have never seen it
1: okay all right so, so the the location matters somewhat
2: absolutely
1: okay so let let's let's take the scenario a little bit now, specific. the car is registered to his grandmother. So it's, okay. it's not his car, but it's registered to his grandmother. So it's not a rental you know, anymore, is what you're saying. It's not a rental, right? She's 75 years old. Abuela.
2: Does she have any other kids? Does uh-huh. she ever lend a car out to other people?
1: Okay. All right. So so in, an, in and of itself, you have lots of questions. And is it fair to say at this point, I'm just getting the sense that I'm not sure you would necessarily convict on just the fact that this was found in his in the car he was driving. Is that fair? Absolutely at this point?
2: not. That's very no. fair. Absolutely okay. not.
1: Great. All right, so now the, the next thing. Let's add this. One of the things that you're surprised to hear as a juror is a defense asks a single question of the drug chemist. It's, the in fact, the only question that they ask. Is it true that your laboratory performs latent print examinations and DNA examinations and none were performed in this case? Isn't that true? and the, the forensic scientist who testifies that that's cocaine says that's true dna and latent prints were not done in this case given what you were just talking about you found that the laboratory they sent the drugs to could do latent prints or dna and did and chose to and and were not instructed i should be clear they were not instructed to do either in other words the cop who submitted this to the lab only submitted it for drug testing and not did not ask for dna or Leighton Prince. What do you think about that?
2: That's a tough one because that goes twofold. My other question to answer that is: Did this guy have a criminal history? Was yes. He, he?
1: Yes, did. he did. But that never comes out to you as a yeah, juror. Yeah, I can't know that. Would not know that.
2: I couldn't. Oh, you couldn't. Add. Wouldn't that be brought up in trial though?
1: Never. It's prejudicial okay. to bring rules. up any past history.
2: So. All right, now I'm going to sound like a horrible juror, but I would look at his demeanor, I would look at his lawyer's demeanor, I would look at, you know, how he's inter like I would look around, is he looking at anyone, is he giving anyone eyes, is he smirking? All the things you're not supposed to do as a juror, I would do, just because body language speaks a lot.
0: That's that's uh, th- thank you for saying that. Are you going to try to read what the tattoos on his face say?
2: No, 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 okay. not like that. Okay. But I'm saying that body language says a lot. Okay. If, if he, you can tell when somebody looks stressed, and you can tell if somebody looks worried, and you can tell if somebody looks like this is like another day in the park. That's what I mean by facial expressions. I don't okay. mean judging someone from the way they look. Just but, their- what,
1: but what if he's got a Latin King's tattoo on his arm?
2: That doesn't matter. It, okay. it could be, he, his buddy could have been transferring the drugs. I mean, uh, all okay. right, let me, let me back up. To be honest, my first thought would be this mofo's guilty. But I would give him the benefit of the doubt because, I mean, that's a lot of cocaine, and I would think that he'd be smarter. If he was a Latin king, he'd be smart enough to hide it somewhere <laughs> better. But, you know, if he had a Latin king tattoo, I might think that the cops try to set him up as well. So I would wonder the fact that they didn't order DNA or forensic testing, you know, for latent prints, that would worry me because that would uh, make okay. the impression that the cops are trying to frame him um, and I would still need more info, but that the cops possibly are trying to frame him and that's why they didn't order it because they didn't want to be wrong.
1: Okay. All right. So now I'm going to change your scenario a little bit here and, and add another thing. So this time they did do fingerprints and they found a fingerprint on the on the packaging on the outside of the packaging. so if you can picture this, it's like a brick. it's about um, oh about eight inches uh, wide and probably five to six inches tall and you know maybe two inches deep. So it's a, it, it's a brick that's wrapped in duct tape and they found a fingerprint on on that. Uh, they processed it uh, through their usual processing and so not only do you have the drug chemist that comes in and confirms it is in fact cocaine, You have the fingerprint analyst who says, we found a fingerprint, and it matches this individual who's the defendant. So that that's what you have at this moment. And let's just assume that it is him driving the car, but it's not his car. It is, in fact, registered to his grandmother. And they find this stuff, you know, wedged back in there amongst the suitcases in the bag. It's not in a suitcase, but it's just wedged back there. What do you think at this point, having a single fingerprint on that packaging?
2: I would say that my friends Eric and Glenn were on my show once (laughs) and told me that it's almost impossible to get a fingerprint on certain surfaces. So if it was wrapped in like Scotch tape or or not Scotch tape, masking tape or gray tape. Duct tape.
1: Duct
2: tape. I remember distinctly my friend Eric telling me that it's almost impossible to leave a print like that. So I'd be skeptical. Was it a full print or was it a half a print?
1: Uh, Well, maybe a partial is the phrase you might hear. Okay, all right. I'd be a little skeptical. Now, suppose that there was a passenger in the vehicle, and the passenger, in fact, was the grandmother who the car was registered to. So now you have two people. You have the driver whose fingerprint has been found on this package, and the passenger who is the grandmother. Does that change anything at this point? You have two different people in the car, the driver, the younger person, who has the fingerprint on that does it change anything for you? It's gonna sound horrible,
2: but it makes him more guilty because my thought is that he would have grandma with him to get away with it
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay Very interesting, interesting. We'll, we'll come, uh, I'm gonna write that down we gotta come we gotta come back to that okay interesting okay. and so my next scenario for you changes up it's not the grandma but two other guys who also have criminal histories. So now we've got three guys in the car, one in the, fr- or two in the front seat, you know, one driver, one passenger, and one in the back seat. But the driver has his fingerprint found on the package. This is all you know at this point. You know, anything about the other guys, because they're not on trial here. It's just this guy, except there were two other people in the car. And, you know, this guy's saying that it's not his drugs. It's one of the other guys in the car. That's all you, that's all you know, but it's his fingerprint on there. You think you might convict at that point.
2: Just based on that alone, though.
1: No. Yeah. Okay. Why?
2: Because I don't think it's enough evidence. I think that one fingerprint, he could have been grabbing his suitcase and touched it with something. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different scenarios. If It's just not enough evidence to put somebody in federal prison for the next 20 years of their life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Fantastic. You are you were answering these questions the way all my students used to answer them, the way all lay people I know answer them. You are you're doing a great job. I you are I I love it. (laughs) Okay. Now I'm gonna up the ante a little bit here. So it's not one fingerprint that's on this packaging, but it's thirteen fingerprints. Thirteen fingerprints on this. And they're different fingers. They're the thumb, the index finger, and so forth. Does that change anything? Three guys in the car. Um, He's saying it's not his. He's saying it's one of the other guys. He didn't know about it in the car. It must have been one of them. But it's only his prints that are found on it, 13 of them. Change anything?
2: Yeah, it makes him the dumbest criminal ever. Um, (laughs) And 13 fingerprints, yeah, I would say there's, you can't mistake 13 fingerprints. Like, you can mistake maybe one or two, but 13, you've held that stuff. Like, you've. Did it – all right, let me ask you this. Was it 13 like he held it with both hands like
1: that uh, or, uh, or was
2: it like sporadic?
1: Yeah, you're jumping ahead of me. That I'm glad you asked that question because that was actually one of the details I'm going to give you is that they're not in any kind of handling order. They are kind of all over in different fragments. So it's not like they're all ten fingers holding it in one way You know, by the sides. That's why I was going to go back to your – Could 13 fingerprints have been placed on there by accident while rooting around the luggage?
2: As a normal, I would consult my friend Eric on that, but I don't believe so. I don't think you can get 13 random fingerprints all over. like, You have to have some kind of pattern.
1: Okay. So suppose that the defense attorney asks that question specifically of the latent print examiner and say, can you tell me how these 13 fingerprints got on here? Do they appear to be handling it in a certain way? And the fingerprint examiner in fact testifies and says, look, I can't tell you anything other than I found these fingerprints on there. They're not in any specific order. They're not in any specific way. They're just kind of randomly all over the surface. And that's all I can tell you. Would that testimony affect anything there?
2: Are jurors allowed to speak to, like, experts at all?
1: No, they're actually typically not allowed to ask questions with a few exceptions, Arizona being one of them. (laughs) Arizona's
0: an exception. But then uh, in that case, you'd have to, after the testimony is done, the cross-examination is done, the redirect is done, then the jurors have an opportunity to write down, again, this is just in Arizona, uh, write down questions on a piece of paper, and the judge has to approve them, and then the judge reads them. And then the expert can answer, and then that's kind of it. There's no like follow up. And if the expert misunderstood the question, there's no real way to kind of get what? any kind of follow up. and it's just here's what the the question said, and do your best to to answer and try to figure out what the juror meant with that question.
1: Yeah, it's a a crappy system when a juror has a really good question and has a sticking point that they want answered, and that question is never addressed by either attorney, the juror just sits there and goes, damn it, I wish someone had asked this question. It's very frustrating for jurors.
2: All right, so let me ask you guys, what scenarios could fingerprints be all over it with no, if, like, you're not going to touch it one by one, like, if there are 13 different prints, is it all the same fingers? Is it different fingers? And if it's different fingers, how did prints get all over the place? You know what I mean? Like, I could yeah. see if you use a hand, if there are four in a row, but how would other than poking it with different fingers? Like, I would need, I would want to know that.
1: Sure, Eric, you want to take a stab at that?
0: Sure. So you were saying you have you have a kid, right, Laura?
1: Three of them. <laughs> Eric, this is exactly where I was going to. That's amazing. It's exactly the first thing I thought of, too.
0: Do you, um, you remember back, back uh, when uh, you, you said you're a son? You have a son?
2: I have three of them. Three I have sons. 14 year old twins and 11 year old. Oh, One perfect. Goal, okay.
0: Boys. Think back when they were all around, you know, between the ages of like two and five, okay? Okay. And think of what the windows of your car looked like with just like fingerprint goo like just okay stuff all over it now looking at it sometimes you you could see like four fingers in a row like all touching each other they all look like the same kind of the same like amount of goop you know or, or jelly or whatever they had on their fingers when they touched it but then others other areas it's just like just fingerprints 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 so sometimes you can see okay, well these four seem to go together but then they're just like in amongst a whole bunch of other stuff and who knows when those other fingerprints were left behind. They could have been sitting there for months and some of them could have just been left yesterday. It's all just kind of mixed up and, and you can't really tell. And also, your sons, they didn't really like plan out where the fingerprints were going to be touched. You know, they obviously on a car window, they can only reach up so high so they're all kind of clustered near one little spot, but it's not like they were left in a certain kind of plan, or you can tell which fingers were used to shut the door or were used to just, because they wanted just to touch something. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, but they always use four or two or a whole print. They never, it wasn't erratic, one, 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 all over the place with the same or different fingers.
0: So, uh-
1: But certain fingers could have been smudged. I mean, if they smudged them, so... Even though I might touch with four fingers, maybe two of them are illegible.
2: Okay.
0: And then Fair enough. And then three of them get covered up by the next hand so that there's one that's left over that's by itself. And then eventually over time there's just kind of a a, a mix of just random singles all by themselves.
1: Yeah, look at any drinking glass that you've ever handled at some point and just you know, turn it in the light and look at all the different angles and different ways that the fingers touch. Okay. Okay. All right, so back to our, our scenario here a little bit. So at the one of the things I'm hearing from you is that it, it you might be leaning towards guilt now hearing that there are 13 fingerprints. So the amount of fingerprints does matter a little bit as opposed to one fingerprint, which in your mind could be somewhat accidental as opposed to 13, which seems less likely to be accidental.
2: If there's 13 that are his... Yes. And it also depends if... The duct tape is his. If the duct tape is his from home, then that 13 fingerprints means nothing. Mm. If the duct tape was bought at a store the same day, that those 13 fingerprints mean everything.
1: So what if it's not possible that they did any duct tape analysis? In in other words, they don't know where the duct tape came from. They don't know anything about the duct tape. It's just just on this thing. So there's no way to know where it actually came from.
2: That's a hard one because let's say Kilo of cocaine crossing state lines, you're facing 20 to 40 years, depending yep. on the state. And for 20, to put somebody away for 20 years, I, I would be a hung jury because I'd want to know where that duct tape came from. Because okay. it, it does make a big difference. Yep. If he bought it at the store that day, well, guess what? He's guilty. If that duct tape came from his house and he's a construction worker, he's not guilty. You know what I mean? You can't use it to base guilt on it.
1: Okay. All right. Now, I'm, I'm, this is great Uh, and so now another element you've added to this is the fact that these fingerprints are basically on this duct tape and you want to know more about the duct tape and the origin of the duct tape okay great now i'm going to change the scenario a little bit here still three guys in the car still this kilo of cocaine in the back as i described but now the fingerprints are not only on the outside but the fingerprint and it's only one fingerprint it's on the inside packaging. So as I described to you, it's a, it's a kilo of cocaine that's wrapped in saran wrap, that's wrapped in duct tape, that's wrapped in rubber, that's wrapped in duct tape again, maybe more saran wrap, and then maybe more duct tape. And so the single fingerprint that ties him is actually now on the inside of the packaging and maybe in some of the saran wrap on the inside. What do you think about that?
2: Same thing. Did the saran wrap come from his house? Where did it come from? Or was the saran wrap bought that day?
1: Yep. Okay. So now I'm going to add the final twist to it. Thirteen fingerprints. And they're on the outside. They're on the inside. They're on saran wrap. They're on duct tape. They're on the rubber balloon. They're on all different layers of packaging. What do you think?
2: Well, all right. Based on that, he's most likely guilty that and I still wouldn't what, prove him guilty based on that alone.
1: Based on that alone. So you would want something else, and not just then this forensic e- – because even if it came back with DNA, let's say it was DNA and fingerprints, that wouldn't matter to you. You need now what? Besides this forensic evidence and he's driving A scenario. the scenario.
2: A scenario.
1: A story. A narrative? A story. A narrative. All right. So if somehow you have multiple witnesses now that come in and say – I knew that he was he he's been dealing drugs for years. he said he was driving up the Minnesota he, the The dealer in Minnesota who was going to buy it, he testifies and rolls over against him, and now you have a whole narrative, then it makes sense, right? That this guy is now a, a dealer who was driving up the Minnesota to sell to a dealer up here, and then it starts to come together for you.:
2: Yeah, I'd say I'm about 75 percent guilty.
1: Okay, so just the forensic evidence alone for you doesn't necessarily equate to guilt, even when his fingerprints are on the inside packaging.
2: Absolutely not.
1: All right. I I want every listener to hear that because that to me was one of the most shocking things that I learned from lay people was how little my evidence actually really mattered in the scheme of things. And as we heard from Alicia Wilcox, who was on here uh, a couple of months ago, and other people that we talked with about jurors and their views, that's about a narrative. That it's not just the forensic evidence, it's the entire story together, and that's what matters. And that the, the forensic examiner is just one small part of the piece of this, and this is why a prosecutor has to have the whole story to make it fit and to get a conviction.
2: Let me explain it like this, and I explained it to you guys on my show, and I'm going to explain it to you guys on your show. Yep. With the to forensic evidence, is it irrefutable? No. Is it definitive and absolute? Absolutely. But <laughs> the one thing for I would answer, have
1: answered both of those uh, the opposite. I would have said, yes, they're refutable, and they're definitely not absolute.
2: Not really, though. I mean, if someone tests for... If a fingerprint comes out that that's somebody's fingerprint, that's their fingerprint. If it comes out that that's their blood, that's their blood. If you're not, there's no way to refute that. But, yeah,
1: we'll get to that.
2: But on the flip side, (laughs) you have to be able to connect the dots to the forensic evidence, or the forensic evidence is pointless. So you can say that that's blood in the car. But if you can't explain, let me rephrase that. I gave this example to somebody, one of my Patreons the other day. If you have a dead body, and you see a dead body laying in the middle of the road with their throat cut, the only thing that you can determine from that is that there's a dead body laying in front of you with blood all over it and possibly slit throat. That's the only thing you could determine. You now have to figure out, well, how they get there? Who killed them? Um, and, you know, why would they place right here? Like, there's so many scenarios that have to go there. Could they have been dropped off? Probably not. You don't see a trail of blood. Could they have been dragged down from the apartment upstairs? Probably not. There's no blood. So you can rule out some. But you have to be able to connect the dots to see which scenario works. And unless you connect the right dots, you can't figure out the forensics to that won't matter.
0: Exactly. So like if uh, they did more fingerprint tests and again, this is his grandma's car and they find his fingerprint on the rear view mirror of the car, that wouldn't mean a thing to you because he's allowed to be in his own grandma's car it it doesn't doesn't weigh at all towards his guilt or towards his innocence either it's just okay his fingerprint is in his own grandma's car that's totally fine he
2: was driving of course he'd hit the rearview mirror exactly right. so
0: and that that's one of the that's one of the things you were i think i was kind of hearing from her explanation Did, did yep. you hear the same thing glenn
1: yeah yeah that's why i'm going to change the scenario just slightly here and and and, and see it Because it's weird. We've been talking about car and drugs, but sometimes I I get varying answers on the next one, so that's why I'm kind of curious to see. It's almost the same scenario but slightly differently or a different view. So imagine it's a burglary case, and there is a single fingerprint – ...that is recovered from the crime scene, and this is inside the home near where the, you know, let's say it was a TV that was stolen, but it was a house that was burglarized, and there was TV, computer, laptop, bunch of stuff stolen, and on the TV stand where the TV was stolen, they find a single fingerprint that they take back to the lab, they search in the database, and they get a hit to some guy, and they go and arrest this guy and charge him with burglary, and that's basically all the facts of the case. His fingerprint is in this home. He never lived there. This is a residential home, and he's been charged with burglary. And that's all you hear as a juror. What do you think about that? Would you convict someone on that fingerprint alone in someone else's house?
2: Absolutely not, because he could have bought the stand at a garage sale, okay, or a thrift store where his fingerprint would be on it, or he worked at the place that the, the you know, the sam was bought at.
1: Yeah, and again, you are answering the way <laughs> many of the people I know will you answer so
3: differently.
1: No, it's it's great, but th- that answer alone will be shocking to a number of fingerprint examiners, and they will think to themselves, "Why do I even do this work then? If <laughs> if it's not <laughs> going to get... because what what is missing from that is suppose that the investigator goes to the guy's house now after." you know getting the report and they find the stolen stuff at the at the person's house after getting the the computer hit um or they go to the pawn shop and find that yep that's the guy who is now the 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 print at the crime scene would that change things for you yeah to a guilty
2: nothing isolated is going to make me say guilty it has to be again would I be leaning towards guilty if all the stolen items are at his house? Yeah, probably. But again, <laughs> and, it,
1: and his fingerprint is, is at the scene.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's. it's I would leaning towards guilty, obviously, but I would still need to know the scenario. Does he have any kids? How old is he? Do they have a criminal history? Um, does he have a bunch of teenagers who are thieves? Like, I mean, no. it doesn't mean he did it. It could be someone in his house did it.
1: Okay. All right, so I'm gonna wrap up my scenarios here, but uh, I've got a cup- just a couple more questions back to back to our our drug case where we've got the single fingerprint on the inner layers of this packaging, and now there's a narrative you know that you know um these other people are testifying that, yes, he he deals drugs. He was driving up to Minnesota. He was going to sell me this stuff. They're rolling over on him. So there's this whole narrative. But now, and, and so let's say you're, you're basically leaning towards guilt. Everything's being connected here. But the fingerprint examiner comes in and he, and he testifies that it's an identification. Do you have an expectation as a juror in this case? I mean, you kind of believe everything that you're hearing. and you know, he says that he identified it to the defendant. But you're surprised that the that the that the witness has the expert witness, the fingerprint examiner, did not bring in a chart of the fingerprints. And you actually never see the fingerprint. You just hear his testimony and he says, Look, I compared these features, I matched it, I identified it to the defendant. Would you expect a chart, like uh, you know, him to walk you through the match, you get to see the identification, or are you fine without with without that and he just says Look, I'm an expert in this. I've been doing this for 30 years. It's an identification. Thoughts?
2: I personally wouldn't... I don't care to have a chart. It doesn't matter. But I know that a lot of people would need to see it laid out piece by piece and, you know, have it mapped out for them with a chart. I personally, though, would
1: not need one. Hmm. And why, why do you think that?
2: Because I can...
1: How do I say this?
2: I would trust the expert if he was a reputable expert. Yeah. I'm smart enough to figure out what he's saying without needing a chart to you know, have him go through everything. But I know some people would need a chart to need every detail explained.
1: Okay. So suppose he brings a chart, and it's not the fingerprint in this case, but it's like a mock-up chart that shows here's a latent, here's a known print, here's how we compare these things – But he doesn't actually bring a chart of the latent in the case. And defense actually even asks him, why didn't you bring it? You brought a chart. Why didn't you bring a chart of the latent in this case of my client that you say, in fact, matches? And his answer is, well, you know, I I brought a chart that shows a clear fingerprint. The, you know, the jurors are not experts in fingerprint examination. Uh, It would be difficult for me to teach them everything I know in about 10 minutes, showing them a distorted partial latent fingerprint so i just brought a clear chart of of an exemplary fingerprint what would you think about that kind of answer
2: i'd say it was a waste
1: what do you mean waste
2: it would be a waste because if it's not if it's not pertaining directly to this case then what's the point like it's kind of like you know he may have murdered him this way but i'm going to show you how this guy did it instead of how this guy did you just you would need one that's specific to
1: the case so either bring one specific to the case or don't bring one at all exactly okay and then last uh last change to this suppose they're back to our 13 latent prints on this you wouldn't expect to see a chart for a single one but you think some people would expect to see a chart for a single latent if there were 13 latents would you expect 13 charts for all 13 latents
2: I would be bored if he brought in 13 different charts. (laughs) But that's me. Um, Yeah, okay. But one thing I learned from Making a Murder and running all these groups and different people and, you know, even on YouTube, some people, a lot of people, majority of people, need that step-by-step, need to see it in detail and can't figure it out for themselves.
1: Why do you think they need that? When you say they need that, is it because that they want to double check the expert or they want to see the process behind it or they just simply want to see that for themselves if it feels right or or whatever what what do you think
2: i wouldn't say it on air no (laughs) i think it's more that they want to see every detail they just they want to make sure that everything fits perfectly they want to make sure that what the expert is saying makes sense with the evidence that's my
1: guess Okay. okay all right Now, something you said earlier surprised me a little bit about um, what you said, you know, fingerprint identification is fairly absolute. If I was to ask you what you think the error rate is, because there are these cases where fingerprint examiners from time to time make errors when it comes to making a fingerprint identification. Do you have any sense, without having, you know, looked it up or have any research behind this, any idea what you think would be an acceptable error rate for a fingerprint examiner? How often, what percent of the time do they get it right or wrong? Any any number you could throw out there for the audience?
2: I don't know. And let me say why I don't know before I give you the answer. I've always been taught or thought that fingerprints are absolute. Everybody's got their own fingerprint, unless you like rub them off or burn them off. But everybody's got their own fingerprint. So I don't, I guess I don't understand how there would be an error if everybody's got their own fingerprint. Like it's pretty easy. It's to me, it's, Eric's probably going to cringe when I say this no, go ahead. but it's better than it's almost like DNA Like it's, everyone's got their own set of fingerprints, even identical twins now how could you mess it up?
1: Okay, alright, so I'll, th- I'll just throw some numbers out there just as an accuracy would you say that, that fingerprints are 90% accurate? 95% accurate? 99% accurate? 100% accurate?
2: Definitely nothing's 100% so I would say, you know, you're asking this question, and the answer would probably be like 70%. But I would say, um, I'd say 95. 95?
0: Okay. All right, so. so just as a follow-up, is, is that good enough for you? Like, do you think that 95%, like, we're doing pretty good, or do you think 95% you guys should do better?
2: I think 95% is fair because, like, if, Somebody was pregnant and they did a paternity test with the baby and it was 95% that, you know, the person they thought it was, that's pretty accurate for me. So Mm -hmm. I say 95% is fine. All
1: right. Now I'm going to flip it a little bit on you and and put it in slightly different terms. Uh, If I was to ask you which of these error rates feel about right to you for fingerprints – one, and how often they, they get it wrong now, okay? This is how often the fingerprint examiner says it's an identification to this individual, and they were wrong. So it's an error rate. One in ten times? One in twenty times? One in a hundred times? One in a thousand times? Or one in a million times?
2: Are we, not- Are, we talk- <clears throat> Are we talking a full print? Are we talking a half a print? Are we talking... Mm.
1: Let's just say the average latent print, which is about twenty-five percent of the full fingerprint. That's the average.
2: I'd say one in a thousand.
1: One in a thousand. Okay. Very good. All right, so now you've you've said that you would be acceptable you, you think a ninety-five percent accuracy rate for fingerprints is good, an error rate of about one in a thousand would be about right. What about DNA? What do you think accuracy-wise on DNA? Ninety percent? or 100%, or somewhere in there?
2: I think 99.9%.
1: Okay, so over 99, but not 100% because nothing's 100%. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And in fact, it seems that you ranked it slightly higher than fingerprints, right? Okay. And now for an error rate for DNA, this is how often they get it wrong. You know, when they say that this profile matches this individual, This is how often they might be wrong about that: one in ten times, one in twenty times, one in a hundred times, one in a thousand times, one in a million times, or zero. I said one in a million. One in a million. All right. So in both instances, you put the accuracy and the error rate basically superior, but just slightly to fingerprints. Is that fair? Okay. Now, my last bit of forensic evidence, which we haven't even talked about, but I'm just going to throw handwriting at you. You know that there are there are experts who can identify a person's signature and say that this person wrote this document or did not or they forged it. Relative to fingerprints and DNA, would you say that the accuracy of handwriting is 90 percent, 95 percent, 99 percent? Hundred percent or some other number? Other number. Lower? Yes, much lower. Fifty percent? Sixty percent? Seven
2: I'd say about sixty five to seventy
1: Okay. All right. And now back to the error rates. Would you say that the 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 error rate, the number of times when they say this person wrote this document and they were wrong? One in ten times, one in twenty times one in a hundred times, one in a thousand, one in a million, zero.
2: I say about one in a hundred.
1: One in a hundred, okay, all right, perfect. And and so, if you are ranking these in order of what we'll say reliability, it sounds like handwriting would be at the at the bottom. Fingerprints would certainly be high, but DNA is higher. Is that's that fair? fair? All right, fair. Where, would you put, where would you put bite marks on this? By the way.
2: Bite marks would come from. (laughs) Um, I would say bite marks would be accurate by about ninety six percent.
1: All right, so it's up near fingerprints. Yeah. Okay. All right. Very good. All right, Eric. That's uh, that's that's my spiel.
0: All right. Well, we're going to take a short break here uh, for a word from our sponsor this week. Uh, big thanks to Go Evidence Forensic Laboratories, which is a full service independent forensic lab that specializes in the That's development what? of latent fingerprint evidence. They serve law enforcement, private parties, corporations, private investigators, prosecution, and defense. Go Evidence is committed to providing the highest standards of excellence with the most advanced technology available in their industry, and their experienced staff is ready to work with you on any criminal or civil investigation. And they're your source for vacuum metal deposition technology. If you've got an old cold case, you want to try something new, all the previous techniques you've used haven't resulted in any fingerprint being developed, you can try VMD. Uh, Go Evidence provides sales, service, and training. They're passionate about this technology, and they always enjoy the chance to talk about it, the capabilities of using this system uh, to get the best evidence available. Now, standard turnaround times on most cases is about two weeks. Consultations are always free. So give Brian Scott a, uh, a call or an email or just contact them by going to goevidence.com. Thank you uh, to them. And, Laura, I, I have – Um, a couple questions also here for you and maybe another scenario for you, but, uh, to start off, there's been a lot of discussion in, in our field, especially in the latent print field over the past, well, many years now, but, uh, definitely past, uh, five, 10 years about how exactly we should phrase the conclusions that we reach. So what I'm going to be reading off to you is a list of different ways to phrase, and this is all the same thing. This is basically the latent print examiner looked at the latent print. They looked at the known. Let's say it's even a bigger latent print than normal. It's like half a finger, uh, and they see all sorts of stuff that corresponds, and in their expert opinion, this is the guy. The latent print was left by that guy in the courtroom. Now, when they come into the courtroom and say that to you, they can use a few. There's a few different terms they could use. They could say that they identified it to the exclusion of all other people on the planet, past, present, and future. They could say that it was an individualization, meaning that they they made it. This latent print came from this individual. They could simply say that. They compared it, and it's an identification, period. That's just the word identification. They could, option number four now, expand on that and say it's an identification. And by identification, I mean, I'm defining that as uh, similarities such that me as the examiner believes that the chance that these features appear in another different fingerprint is a practical impossibility or again they meaning the same thing everything matches up but they just say that the latent print and the known prints are associated or again same thing they see everything that matches up but they just limit themselves to saying well i couldn't exclude the person so and that's they just leave it at that now this is a wide range from everywhere going way back into the past on how people used to testify To all the way forward to today, and then also some proposals that some people have made as to how we should phrase our conclusion. So I want to just kind of get your opinion on if any of these strike you as overstatement, understatement, just the right level of statement, uh, and just kind of your thoughts on that. And I can reread any of these if you need me to.
3: I
2: think so. The first half were better. The second half reminded me that this guy's probably innocent because I am a person of, I am a person, like, I want definitive answers. So if you were to say to me with 98% certainty or 98% match to this guy's fingerprints, um, that would do it for me. If you can say with certainty that, you know, there's a match of, 75%. It's almost like a paternity test. You can't argue a paternity test. You're either not, you're either baby's daddy or you're not baby's daddy. 99% accurate, you know, like that kind of thing. So if I was on a trial, I would want a forensic guy. If I was a juror, let me rephrase that. If I'm a juror, I would want to know the percentage of certainty. I wouldn't want to know wishy-washy answers. I wouldn't want to know possible answers or could be. I want to know with his professional opinion what his degree of certainty is. If I'm on the defense team, I want the opposite. If <laughs> right, I'm on the prosecution, I want for the jury. So it really depends who calls you in. Does the defense call you in or does the prosecutor call you in? And to me personally, I would weigh that out. Because if the defense called him in and he's telling he's giving me this wishy washy answer, well, the defense is paying him. If the prosecution called you in, and you gave me a definitive answer, and it couldn't be refuted by another expert, that weighs a lot to me. That would weigh a lot.
0: Okay. Um, so let me let me phrase it this way. And I'm sharing my screen here with you so you can see the, the mm-hmm. list that I provided, So uh, just to make it a little easier. Let's say that the, we, the one side or the other asks me, the expert, some question along those lines. And um, so my response might be something like this. With in fingerprint comparisons, uh, there is no. I don't currently have a way to express my uh, my conclusion in a numeric term. Um, however, in a very large published research study of the accuracy of latent print examiners, when they reached the identification conclusion they were correct 99.8% of the time. And um, this is also just the one examiner before it gets verified by a second examiner. And in my lab, all identifications are verified by a second examiner. So like kind of like we were saying before with Glenn, not 100%, but nothing in life is. So let me rephrase the question slightly. Which of these terms... Do you think best fits that research um, saying that in this large study, and at least in that study, it was when you said identification, the examiners were right 99.8% of the time?
2: Um, I like the third one.
0: Just identification?
2: Identification, yeah. Okay. I don't like association. It's too narrow.
0: It's too um, wishy, Indian, wishy-washy like you were it's saying? too
2: wishy-washy, yep. Um, Because association could be twins. I mean, I just, that wouldn't fly with me. Could not exclude, to me, is 50-50 shot. Okay. Um, Identification is identification. A 98% rate of getting it right, there's going to be some credibility to that.
0: But saying, you know, the top one, identification and exclusion of everyone else who's ever lived and ever will live, that's that's, that's going too far. That's overstating it too much.
2: It's that's hundred percent and nothing is a hundred percent.
0: Okay. Glenn, what'd you what you think?
1: Uh, I think the question that I would pose to you, Laura, is if the examiner said I am certain of these conclusions and I'm confident in the accuracy of my results, would that mean something to you if they were asked, you know, let's say let's say in fact the question directly to them is, how certain are you of your examination? And it's clear that they don't want to say 100% sure. And they say, well, I'm confident in the accuracy of my results. I applied my SOPs and I've documented and I brought a chart and showed you how I reached my conclusions. What would you think about that?
2: Is he a very reputable expert that has very high credibility and high yes Yes.
1: rates? Yes.
2: And yes, then it would would have some weight.
1: Okay. Because let's say the examiner says, I'm 100% sure that would give you that would make you feel a little better, right? If they say I'm 100% no. sure. Oh. No. Why why would 100% be a, a problem for you?
2: Because nothing is 100% accurate. You okay. can the minute somebody told me it's 100% that I'm right, you can think you're 100% <laughs> right. But when it comes to forensic science, n- nothing is going to tell me it's 100% that there's no room for error. But that's just how I think. I, to me, nothing is absolute. But I'm not a mathematician, so no, right. you know. Uh,
1: so if if I hear you correctly, you want them to be confident in the accuracy of their results, and you want them to be competent as well, and demonstrate that competence. But you don't want them to be overconfident and say a hundred percent certainty. Ninety-nine percent,
2: yeah, ninety-nine percent certainty would be fine. Ninety-eight percent certainty would be fine.
1: What if they can't give you a number? In fact, let's say the answer is this. What would you think about it? Let's say that the defense or the prosecutor is trying to lock the guy down and saying, are you 99% sure? Are you 100% sure? And here's the answer that they give. They go, look, as a scientist, because I can't use a statistical model, I can't quantify the actual certainty in this examination. So the best I can do is tell you that I applied my SOPs, I have demonstrated the process that I used. I have demonstrated and shown you today how I reach my conclusions. And I'm personally confident in the accuracy of my results, but I can't quantify exactly what that percentage is. It would be inappropriate for me to attempt to quantify that. What would you think about that response?
2: I don't know. That in itself, I, I couldn't answer. I would need more of the dots around it. To really formulate the proper answer.
1: Okay, uh, but you don't necessarily think the person is is trying to be evasive, or they're necessarily lying, or no? Yeah, they're they're confident. They just can't give you an exact percentage because they're they're unable to because they can't.
2: I think I might respect that more than somebody going up there being. Well, I know for a hundred percent certainty. That would turn me off more.
1: Okay.
0: All right. So, because of distortion or when it gets down to being, you know, a really partial fingerprint, there are sometimes when a fingerprint examiner looks at two prints, sees similarities between the two prints, but thinks that, well, everything I see matches, but I just don't think it's enough.
1: So, in the in the example that Eric gave, let's go back to the the drugs case. And, you know, you've got these guys who are saying this guy was transporting these drugs. Yeah, there are a couple of other guys in the car. The fingerprint examiner examines the, you know, the evidence. The DNA person's examines, doesn't find any DNA. And that happens from time to time. And they find this partial fingerprint that Eric is talking about. So back to the drug case with the guy driving. The narrative is all there. But the only forensic evidence that ties him together is this fingerprint. But, from what you said before, he's driving the car, his fingerprint's found on these layers, there's this narrative that ties in. That sounds like that's pretty compelling evidence to you, yes? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So, let's say it's no longer an identification to him, but as Eric said, it's this inconclusive with um, features in agreement, but insufficient to identify. Do you think that has some weight in that case? Absolutely. Even though it's not an ID... Just the the mere fact that the fingerprint does have some similarities to to the defendant, it's it's not like he was pulled out of a random database. I mean, he's driving the car; it happens to match, and so forth.
2: If he's facing twenty years, where his life's going to be ruined, yes, it holds some weight. If it's if he's a career criminal with tattoos all over his face. And he, you know, has some public defender and he's laughing the whole time in court, but he's only facing a year.
3: Okay.
2: Maybe I'm going to teach him a lesson kind of, you know, not that I'm going to, but you know what I mean? Like for me personally, and I know that I don't speak for everybody, but for me personally, every single scenario has, every piece of the puzzle has to fit together. Yeah. I I can never look at one thing and say guilty. I mean, unless of course there's a confession and he's holding the gun and, you know, he just shot his wife and said, yes, I just shot my wife. That's kind of definitive. Um, but other than that, there's, unless I was there, I, I could never base anything just on one piece of evidence.
1: Right, right. But that's why I gave you the, the narrative adds up. These other people, 10 different witnesses came in and said that, you know, he was calling and making these deals. That's why I was driving up the Minnesota, um that, you know, so there's all this other stuff there. But just in other words, just the fact that it's not an identification or standalone identification it's still critical evidence to to this case and you might even convict if all that other narrative and stuff is there correct
2: yes but i would also never convict anybody on witnesses on their friends or family sure, sure. i would never do it
1: sure i uh, i totally understand okay so let's let's go back to this and just frame it one slightly different way instead of setting up fingerprint. It's the exact same fingerprint Eric talked about. I'm picturing exactly what Eric said in in my head, that it's, it's a partial fingerprint that has characteristics that match the defendant. In fact, they could exclude the other two guys in the car, a different pattern type, so it wasn't them. Couldn't exclude the defendant because it matches his pattern, which is shared by many people. But then some of the individual characteristics matched, but not enough to say definitively it's his fingerprint. That's what Eric described, right? hmm And you're, you, you understand all those nuances, yes? Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me add one more thing to it. I ran this through a statistical model for fingerprints, and I measured the frequency of those characteristics. And even though there's only seven of them, and normally for an identification, you might want 10, 11, or 12, or maybe more. But, I mean, there's a fair number, but not enough to make an identification. But those seven characteristics, I ran through a fingerprint statistical model, and I can estimate that the number of people that would share those characteristics are approximately one in a million people. That's one in a million that would be expected to share those characteristics. So that's the same thing Eric said. It's inconclusive. We can't say definitively it's him, but one in a million people would be expected to share those characteristics. Does that change anything for you?
2: Um, that's a tough one because Texas has millions of people.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And to say that it's one in a million matches when in a state that I don't know how many they have, let's say ten million, the odds are less than someone if he lived in Minnesota that has less people do you know what I mean? Like I don't know yeah. the, I don't know the population of both, but that to me makes a difference. Did he come from California, you know, like all that to me makes a difference.
1: Okay. Because if I hear you correctly is that when you have a large population of individuals then there are potentially other people that could be contributors to that fingerprint, right?
2: Uh, isn't there more? Uh, when you say that you tested it through this, whatever you tested through, is that based on criminals or human beings?
1: Ah, uh, so let me, let me make the, this clear. I, I don't want to confuse the two. This is, not a, this is not a database of individuals, I didn't run it through a database to get a match. What I did was I compared the characteristics in this fingerprint, this specific fingerprint, just like DNA, to estimate how many other people in a population would be expected to have those fingerprints. He was still the the defendant because he was driving the vehicle, so he wasn't run through a database and developed. What I'm saying is he was driving the car, we processed the evidence, We compared a fingerprint we found on the evidence to him, found that these characteristics matched, and normally would just simply say inconclusive, insufficient to identify, but characteristics shared. But I can add one more thing to it and tell you how rare those characteristics are. Does adding that statistic make any difference at all in this case to you, now that you know something about how rare the characteristics are? Or I could have just left it as they match, but you know, insufficient to identify.
2: No, that definitely has weight because that's almost like saying it's 98% accurate. So it's, I would draw that same kind of conclusion. Um, if you say, and it was one in a million, I was under the impression. I thought you meant that you ran it. through some kind of test with all criminal fingerprints. So I was saying yeah. like, if there's more fingerprints, cause there's more people. So, One out of every million criminals, but I see what you're saying.
1: Right. In fact, what I think you heard was I ran it through an APHIS database. And and if the database contains a lot of people and it's an identification, you might – you personally as a juror would want more matching characteristics than fewer because more people could be expected to share those by random chance in the database. You got it. Yep. Yep. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay. All right. So, so back to our inconclusive fingerprint with a statistic. The statistic then helps you understand how much weight to put on an inconclusive, even though it's not a definitive match. Right? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. That is correct. Okay. But you still, like you said before, you still need all the narrative and all the other evidence that ties it all together as opposed to just a standalone fingerprint on the packaging whether it's a statistical match or an identification or whatever. Yep. Okay. That's correct. Perfect. Uh Eric, I've asked all the questions I need to.
0: I yeah, and I think it's time to uh to close things out. Uh Laura, I, I really do want to thank you for putting up with all these different scenarios and, and, and answering.
3: It was awesome.
0: And I know it's tough, you know, just being thrown these things, you know, uh, you know, right at you, you know, without reading things ahead of time, but, you know, definitely appreciate, um, you know, you being willing to, uh, just kind of fly by the seat of your pants and, and, and have just all this stuff thrown at you, um, because it's, it's really an important perspective for – especially for our audience, which is mainly forensic scientists, latent print examiners, to get a better understanding of what jurors hear and what jurors are expecting from us. Uh, and yeah. that will just make us better testifiers, better communicators in court of taking the evidence that we have and providing it to – jurors who are, I mean, you know, essentially they're the ones that have to make the decision. We just have to come in Mm -hmm. and just say what we did and what we uh, found and what we concluded and then leave it all up to to them. And if we can better communicate what we did, what we found, and what all that means uh, from, you know, everything that we know, you know, that'll just improve, hopefully, the goal is just improve the criminal justice system as a whole.
2: You know it's funny, though? And I, first, I want to thank you guys for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. But it, what you guys were asking me kind of scares me about why our system, or even like how our system gets it right 95% of the time. <laughs> because it's it's almost like, for me personally, I want more answers. Like, if I know nothing about, let's say, if I know nothing about forensics, I know nothing about criminal history, I know nothing about criminology, you know, and and I believe that some experts coming up there and he's going to tell me the truth. Well, experts can lie, too. And or or
1: be generally mistaken and not realize that they are mistaken.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And I don't think anybody should put 100 percent weight in. Okay, the experts say he's guilty. So he's guilty. You know, I, it scares me about our jury system, I and mean, I, I really – I don't even know how we get it right 95% of the time, but we do. Huh.
1: So, Like maybe. We, we hope so. We hope so.
0: We definitely hope so.
1: Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, Laura, almost every single answer you gave did not surprise me. In fact, they were pretty much expected other than one. The only one that you surprised me with was the chart question. I expected that you would want a chart. Uh, that's normally what I would hear lay people tell me about nine about ninety five percent of the people I would poll would tell me that if there's a fingerprint in the case, they expect to see a charted enlargement, and if the expert doesn't bring one, they're going to sit there the whole time and be very suspicious and wonder why he didn't bring one, and even worse is to bring a mock up one from a different case or you know like an exemplary one. Like, that's even more confusing to them. And I'm not exaggerating, Laura. This is something that was taught to examiners for decades to do, is to bring the exemplary one. Don't bring the one from the case, but here's the one you should bring. And and I've never met a layperson who has ever thought that was a good idea. Ever. Ever. Yeah, no. I don't agree with that. (laughs) And yet it was taught for decades.
0: And still occurs a lot. So, um, well, that'll do it for our show again. Big thanks to you, Laura. Um, if uh, any listeners out there have any follow-up questions that you have for me and Glenn or, heck, even any follow-up questions that you want us to forward on to Laura, uh, you know, just send us an email, eric at rayforensics.com, glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Uh, and then Laura, what's Laura's channel again? Yeah, I was going to say, Laura, why don't you mention the name of your YouTube channel again uh, so people uh, can, uh, can find you there?
1: And check out your making a murderer stuff.
2: Yes. It is Perplex Q T or youtube.com slash perplexed. And then I have I just started a brand new station for live shows, and that is Purple Resurrected, um, also on YouTube.
0: And just uh, in if you go you're looking for Perplex Cutie, it's Perplexed like Purple p u r p l e x e d. QT, the letters Q and then T. My uh,
2: Twitter is TwistedXcons. Um, Facebook, you can find me under Laura Tech or PerplexQT. Um, and I have numerous rooms covering the Kelsey Gareth case, is Ethan Hauschwitz uh, case, and Make It a
3: Murderer.
0: Fantastic. All right. Um, so make sure to follow us at Double Loop Pod. Uh, again if uh, you're interested in uh, uh, helping us supporting the show uh, I started up a Facebook group so if you look for Double Loop Podcast in the Facebook groups you can join us there and we're also looking for a moderator for that Uh, so if you want to kind of join the team the Double Loop Podcast inner circle if you will uh, just you know send me a message and um, we can get you all set up with that Uh, our our super fans that do that kind of stuff which includes Becca running the Twitter, uh, Michael running the webpage uh, Gibby uh, organizing and cataloging all of our old episodes. Uh, also get access to the same content that all our Patreons are, all our patrons uh, access through Patreon.com uh, So go to uh, for any training that we have coming up go to RayForensics.com for me or go to Ron Smith and Associates for any of Glenn's training. Remember, the opinions expressed on the show belong to the speaker, not to anybody else. And with that, we'll catch you guys later. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.
3: Bye-bye.